This is the City of Refuge, Thomaston, Georgia, Sunday morning podcast. The following is a live recorded sermon by Pastor Jeff Deal. So we have been studying in the book of Jeremiah for uh, three or four weeks. We're going to keep doing that today. All these messages and all this information is really, yeah, kids can go out is really relevant to our times, to our culture, to our society. So don't look at this just like a Bible story from way back some 2,600 years ago, but look at it as information that applies to you and me right now, where we live in this day and time in America and right here in this local community. It's very, very relevant. It's very, very important information. It can really help us if we will absorb it, contemplate it, meditate on it, apply it. It'll make a difference in our lives and it will help us. So, Jeremiah was born during the last decade of the rule of a king named Manasseh. I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy, but... I can't really even think of anybody to compare Manasseh to. He was so bad. So he was king in Judah for 55 years, and he was the worst king in the history of the nation. And he was just a terrible human being, a terrible leader, an immoral person, and his reputation was bad throughout the known world at that time. Um, And he ruled for 55 years because he was a dictator and he had control and he had his people around him. And so he was able to hold the throne for that long. And Jeremiah was born, as I said, during the last decade of his rule. So Jeremiah grew up witnessing the effects of the leadership of a terrible king He grew up and went to school and learned and was part of a society that was under the control of terrible people, you know, and it impacted him deeply. It impacted his family. They knew that the northern kingdom had already been besieged, that the people there had already been taken captive. They knew that enemies were lining up to invade them. And fortunately, Jeremiah was called to be a prophet, a voice to the nations early on so that he was not drawn into this bad culture that was all around him. But there were lots of things, some of which I wouldn't even describe in mixed company, that Manasseh was allowing to happen in their society all sorts of sexual atrocities that went even into the church, into the temple, so that they had prostitutes who lived in the temple and did their work in the temple and stood at the city gates and solicited business and that kind of stuff. And they would have parties, quote-unquote, I won't, I won't use other terms, that involved entire communities, you know, just out in the open. So it was really, really bad stuff. A lot of witchcraft, a lot of wizardry, a lot of darkness, a lot of barbarism, human sacrifice, 
Manasseh the king even took his own son at one point and burned him on a sacrificial altar to a pagan god. That's what kind of a person that we're talking about. This was evil that exceeded even that of their pagan enemies. So the, all those armies and all those countries, those nations around them that were planning to annihilate them, that hated them, that had their own worship going on of idols and pagan gods and all that. In the scripture, we are told that the evil that, was, that existed in Judah under Manasseh's rule was worse than that. And these are God's people. These are God's chosen people. This is the land that he promised them. That's where they're living. And yet this is what has been allowed to happen. Well, Manasseh died and he was followed by his son, Ammon, who was just as bad as his father, but his reign only lasted for a few months and then he was assassinated. And he was followed by a young boy king named Josiah. Now, Josiah was a different breed. He was of the same family, but for some reason, just internally from the time he was a little kid, he was different. He did not align with this evil. He seemed to know that it was wrong, that there should be a better way. And when he became king, he immediately went to work to try to return God's people to true worship, to try to clean up the temple, to try to do away with a lot of this stuff that was going on around him. And so the first thing they did was to clean out the temple, to clean out the storage rooms, to do a, a total spring cleaning, empty everything out into the yard, make piles of stuff that needs to be burned, throw away stuff that needs to be thrown away, pull out the good stuff that needs to be kept, clean it up, restore it to its rightful place, fix the temple up the way the temple was supposed to be. And so, is that a good lesson for us? I mean, before we start to add, why don't we clean out what's already there that doesn't belong? Before we expect growth, why don't we get rid of the dead weight that doesn't support your growth, as a matter of fact, is going to hinder your growth. And I think a lot of pastors and a lot of ministries get caught up in growth and numbers. They want the church to get bigger. They want the chairs all to be full. They want the, the house to be, you know, raucous with the number of people and all the activity that's going on. That's all fine. You know, the more people who come in your door, the more people you have opportunity to minister to. True. But sometimes you've, you have things inside the house that need to be cleaned out. And then once that happens, and it may be painful while it's happening, it may seem like, well, we're going backwards. You know, we're losing here. We're, we're not gaining ground, we're losing ground. But what we don't realize is, once you prune, you get more productivity. Once you get rid of the dead, then new life can start to spring up. It applies in agriculture. It, it applies across the board that sometimes there's a requirement of pruning, of cleaning out, of get ready, getting rid of dead weight so that new and good and more can happen. So they do a big clean out. 
and a cleanup. And then in the midst of doing that, somebody locates a book and brings it out. There's so much symbolism in all this and so much truth in all of this. I'm, I'm going to let you just take it and run with it in your own spiritual imagination because we don't have time to dig into all of it. But if you commit yourself to a clean out, because this not only applies to the church, this not only applies to ministry, this not only applies to kingdoms at large, to the kingdom at large, this applies to your own heart. This is about you individually as much as it is about anything. Do you have some cleaning out that needs to happen? Do you, do you have some cleaning up that needs to happen? Do you need to do a serious self-evaluation and see what's in you that don't belong? What's in you that needs to be extracted, done away with, tossed on the garbage pile, and then you just move on away from it? And if that's the case and you, you commit yourself to that, what you're going to discover along the way is that there's stuff that is good stuff, powerful stuff, truthful stuff, that is available to you that's been buried under the garbage that was in there that didn't belong. You're going to find the Word of God. You're going to find the truth of God. You're going to find the Holy Spirit. And when they're doing this practical clean-out, someone comes across a book, and the book is literally the Word of God because the book they discover is the book of Deuteronomy. So it is the powerful sermon that Moses preached to the children of Israel on the plains of Moab after they had wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. And they were now looking to where they could see it off in the distance. And they were going to enter. They were going to realize this promise that God had given them. But Moses couldn't go with them. He was going to die on the plains. They were going to celebrate his life and then they were going to enter the promised land without him under the leadership of Joshua, right? And so Moses preaches this powerful sermon and it's got two elements to it. One is instruction. These are the things you need to do. These are the things you have to do in order to be protected by your God in order to be provided for by your God, in order to be empowered by your God. These are absolute requirements. It's instructions, it's counsel, it's information. And the second part of it is that it's encouragement. It's like God is saying to them, look, I know how stupid you've been. I'm well aware of that. Nothing's hidden. Nothing about you is a mystery to me. I've been watching you. I know you. I knew you just like Jeremiah from before the time you, you were born. I knew what your life was going to consist of. Okay? And I know that a lot of it's been ridiculous. And I know that you've lived in disobedience some part of that, the time that you've been alive. I know that you have not surrendered to my plan for some of your life. Maybe all of it. Right? I know about the times that... I counseled you to do this, but you chose your own way. I know about the times that you placed yourself at the center, put me on the perimeter, and expected me to resource your idea. I know about all that. But it's like God is saying to them, even with all that in mind, I still have a plan for you. 
My plan hasn't changed. I still want to resource and empower you to accomplish that plan. I still want to give you the promises that have always been there. I'm still here to forgive you. I'm still here to cleanse your heart and your mind. I'm here to give you another chance. Of all, after all the chances you've had, I'll give you another one and another one and another one. It's full of encouragement. So here are God's people who have been subjected to evil leadership, to evil influences, to a culture that is far away from the heart of God. And under the leadership of a, a young king, they decide to cleanse. And in that process, they find the Word of God and they're reminded. And renewal starts to happen. And instruction is re reminded to them again. And encouragement is given to them again. And what a, what a beautiful opportunity, right? This is a great opportunity for God's people to turn the corner, to get it right. How many times has that happened? Over and over and over. So Josiah starts this reformation. A complete turnaround is what he has in mind. He's going to reform the society. And listen, outwardly it's very impressive because they do clean everything out that doesn't belong. They do burn piles of stuff, idols, you know, pagan symbols, elements of witchcraft and wizardry, elements of sexual deviance. They cleanse it. They get rid of it. And they begin to reestablish the house of God, the temple, into what it's supposed to be. What it was when it was originally built, a house of true worship to the one true God. They do that. It's very impressive outwardly, but it's only skin deep. And this is the point that I want you to take with you today. That we can look all the way you're supposed to look. And we can have the right kind of facility, the right lighting, the right colors, the right atmosphere. We could have, you know, we can spend uh, 20 grand on, on one of those big screens and put it up here where you can do all the cool technology, the digital stuff. We can divide the screen up where you can see different things at the same time until instead of our little you know, pitiful TV screens up here. We, we, could, we could do something bigger and better. You know, we can spend piles of money making sure that the outside appearance is everything it needs to be. We could hire musicians to come in, professional musicians to come in and play for us on Sundays so that all of that is just right. You know, so that the sound is perfect and the the musicians are great and the singers are awesome. You can do all of that. You can create that kind of reformation, but then you got to ask yourself, what's in the heart? What's in here? 
If you start digging deep, what are you going to find? If you start looking beyond surface level, what's the heart of the matter? Right? Remember that, remember that Don Henley song, trying to get down to the heart of the matter? That's, I think that's what the church needs to do, is the church needs to get down to the heart of the matter. What's going on internally? What, what is our level of purity in what we're doing? What is our motivation in what we're doing? I was talking with somebody recently about a church that they are involved in. They're not really happy there. <clears throat> and they said that they had brought a request from a needy family that it's the first request the family had ever made. It's not one of those families that comes running every month wanting you to pay their light bill, right? First request they'd ever made. It was for like $95 for help on a utility bill. They'd run in some into some trouble that one month. So the staff is in staff meeting on Monday, and they're discussing all the business, and, th and this person had sent a note asking for assistance for this needy family, right? And this is a church of uh, 1,500 members. And so a discussion was had about this request for $95 in assistance. And the conclusion was, well, we've established a policy that we're only going to assist we're only going to provide a maximum of $50 for this kind of request for this year because we're focused on raising the money to buy, and I'm not going to name it, but a really expensive piece of equipment that they wanted for their sanctuary. Okay? Now, I'm not passing judgment. If I, if I was judging those people, that house, that pastor, whatever, I'd call their names. I'm not passing judgment on them. But what I am doing is pointing out, generally speaking, how mixed up, messed up the priorities of the church are in so many cases. And it's rampant. It's pandemic that we spend and we do and we work and we strive and we hire in order to draw the crowds but when you have the homeless in the crowds, that's not really our focus. That's not really our target audience. When you have needs for practical benevolent assistance to come up, those requests, and you can't or won't do it because you need to spend more money on toys and stuff that'll make everybody feel better and, and, and have a better experience when they come to church, then you've got a priority issue. It's okay to do all, do as well as you can do with your music and your presentation and your productions and all that stuff. Do as good as you can do, but not at the expense of blessing the poor. Because look, think about it. It's not the mandate of Christ to have a beautiful church building with all the amenities but it is the mandate of Christ to bless the poor. So we can't do something that's not the mandate of Christ at the expense of something that is. That amounts to hypocrisy. So we got a reformation going that is outwardly impressive, but it's only skin deep. 
Well, Jeremiah has grown up some now. He's a young man. And he's excited about the possibilities. He's excited. Look what's happening. We're cleaning it out. We're restoring. We're bringing back the true word and worship of our God, the one true God. i got to get in on this. So he gets up, he gets ready, he goes down to the temple. He's ready to get involved. He wants to give, he wants to serve, he wants to do, he wants to preach. And he gets there, and there are all kinds of people standing outside the gates of the temple, and they are shouting. This is the the message translation that Peterson gives us. This is God's temple, God's temple, God's temple. This is God's temple. You see the point? We've got our church signs, our beautiful buildings, and we've got all kind of people cheering and cheerleading. This is our church. This is the church. This is it. This is what it's about. Look at us. Look at me. Got my church shirt on. I'm there. I've arrived. It's God's temple, God's temple, God's temple. What's the problem with it? The problem with it is that when you make your way through these people who are standing out at the gates shouting, trying to pass along a message, and you get inside, you don't find true service and true worship that is supposed to be on the inside of God's operation. You just find more noise. You find more chaos. You find more people clamoring about what they, who they are and what they have, but you don't really see, see the real thing going on. You, know, you don't see people taking care of the poor and the hungry and the orphan and the widow and the prisoner. You don't really see people addressing the serious needs of folks in their community climbing into the ditch with them and patching up their wounds and drying their tears and then taking them by the arm and leading them down the road where there's something better. You don't really see that. It's just a lot of noise. It's a lot of presentation. And so Jeremiah is profoundly disappointed. He's just disappointed in what he sees because he had high hopes for this reformation. This statement, I'm quoting Eugene Peterson from the book, Run With the Horses Now. Just, when I read it again, it just rocks me every time I read it. He says, the church is never in so much danger as when it is popular and millions of people are saying, I'm born again, born again, born again. The church is never in so much danger as when that's going on. That's not the way most people think about it. Most people think about it like the more people you have saying, I'm born again, born again, born again, the better things are. That means more people are coming to Christ, right? Wrong. What it means is that people are not being presented with a proper understanding of the gospel 
which is not about taking on a label or an identity of being born again, but it's about being transformed from the inside out in a way that impacts everything you do in life. Because when the church and when the people of the church are clamoring, I'm born again, We're, I, I'm saved, look at, look at what all is happening here. And I frequently, because I have lots of friends who are pastors, right? And so I'll see their social media posts or I will hear them say in person, and we had 35 people saved last Sunday. I'm like, thank God. Thank God people are getting saved. Now what? Now what are you going to do with them? What's the process of discipleship look like starting the minute they repented? What areas of service and benevolence are you going to lead them into according to their giftings and their talents? What presentation are you giving to them concerning giving away their time, their talent, their treasure, their entire lives? What now? The church is in danger when this is happening because then we become comfortable in believing that that's the way it is. But that's just not the way it is. The kingdom of God is not about the number of people that get saved. The kingdom of God is not about the number of people who pray the sinner's prayer. The kingdom of God is not about the number of people who attend church. You know, I, I wish I could tell you something different. But if you don't believe me, just read the Bible. That's all I ever say to people. Just read the Bible. I don't know where you're coming up with what you're saying. Just read the Bible. Read it. There is no, there's nothing in the Bible that declares that the kingdom of God is about people getting saved. As a matter of fact, when Jesus commissioned his followers about what their responsibility was in the earth, he never said, go get people saved. What did he say? He said, go therefore into all the world and make disciples. Make disciples. Not get people to pray a 20-word prayer. Make disciples. Teach people. Lead people. Give them the truth of the kingdom. Set the example for them. Give them opportunities for service and for worship. The church is in danger when it's all about just getting people saved and filling up the chairs. So the right place and the right words are not the life of faith, but they are the opportunity for the life of faith. And this is what Jeremiah realized was this reformation that was happening was an opportunity. This cleansing that was taking place in the temple presented an opportunity to the people to turn the corner and begin to get it right. That's why he went down there. That's why he was willing to give and serve and do. Because he wanted to be part of a real reformation that was more than skin deep. And he was disappointed. 
You remember when Jesus went into the temple and started thrashing people and turning over tables and yelling about how this is God's house, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. Remember that? And he gave a little speech. Do you know who, who he quoted in that speech? He quoted Jeremiah. Jesus loved Jeremiah. He quoted Jeremiah. There's a small handful of people that Jesus ever quoted, and Jeremiah was one of them. And when people were trying to figure out who Jesus really was, you know, one of the names that was mentioned, right, was Jeremiah. There's a close connection between Jesus and Jeremiah. And Jesus goes into the temple. And man, I just, I just, I just think that today, in a lot of places, that people would go to the temple, the house of God, the church on a Sunday morning, and see everything that's going on, they would be fascinated. Right? They would be excited. There's activity here. There's stuff happening here. People are preaching. People are teaching. And they're raising money for the ministry. Out in the yard and in the, in the foyer and in the bookstore. Because doesn't activity represent productivity? Uh, isn't the number of people you have an indication of how well things are going? Well, evidently Jesus was not impressed with the activity and the noise and the number of people. It seems to me that he was highly unimpressed with all of that. He went with a desire to see true worship, true service, real humility, real purity of motivation and everything they were doing. And what he found was hypocrisy. And he quoted Jeremiah because he and Jeremiah were doing the same thing 2,600 years, or 2,000 years, or I'm sorry, 600 years Apart, Jeremiah lived 600 years before Jesus. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus was on the earth. Preaching the same thing, thinking the same thing, witnessing the same thing, following after the heart of the same God. It's also why Paul warned Timothy about a show of religion. A show of religion. Big show church does not impress God, and we should not be impressed with it. And I'm not talking about numbers. I mean, you can have a church with 5,000 people, and if the worship is pure and right, and the word is pure and right, and it's a church with a benevolent heart that's blessing the community, blessing the poor, taking care of the weak and vulnerable, man, that is beautiful. That's awesome. And you'll find that mostly in Asia. <laughs> you have big churches that have a lot of people 
but the word is going forth with power and effectiveness and the benevolence in their communities is what it's supposed to be. No show of religion allowed. So, just to finish up, going to church is easy. Okay? It really is, especially in America. Going to church is easy. What, what keeps you from going to church? Your own laziness, right? Your own lack of commitment. Um, all, all sorts of excuses and, and circumstances you allow to dictate whether you go to church or not. That's all fine. And then you have legitimate reasons here and there why you, why you miss church, and that's all fine. Nobody's... At least I don't think you ought to have to attend church every single Sunday or you're backslidden heathen. That's not the point. It's about what's in your heart, what's your motivation. Either way, in America, going to church is easy. You didn't, you didn't have any real trouble this morning getting up and going to church. Well, you didn't want to wake up. It, it is a funny thing, though, right? Our church starts at 1030. And we all get up and go to work way earlier than that during the week, right? But man, on Sundays, it's hard for people to get up and get ready and be there at 1030 for church. My, my wife keeps saying, well, you ought to move start time to 11. I'm like, what? 11 o'clock, the day's over. So is 1030 not late enough in the morning <laughs> to start church and expect people to be able to get up and be there? Going to church here is easy. It's easy anywhere in America. And really, you go anywhere you want to go and walk in the church, and they're not going to bother you. It's easy. You don't have armed police and armies standing on the corner stopping you, saying, hey, you're going to church. No, you're no. that doesn't happen here. But a lifestyle of prayer, devotion to Scripture reading, study, meditation serving the poor, fighting injustice, and war and hunger is hard. You hear me? Going to church is easy, but a lifestyle of prayer, devotion to Scripture reading, study, meditation, serving the poor, fighting injustice and war and hunger is hard. Well, I'm here to tell you today that God's mandate for you and for me is not that we go to church. It's a good thing to go to church, but that's not his mandate. But his mandate is that we live a lifestyle of prayer and devotion to Scripture and meditation and worship and serving the poor and fighting injustice and war and hunger. That's his mandate. That's who we are. That's what we do. That's why we exist. It's the only reason the church should exist anywhere, in any culture, at any point in time is to do the things that God mandates us to do. What is required is long obedience. You knew you were going to hear that word, right? Long obedience. So we're studying this book, Run With the Horses, by Eugene Peterson. It's not the first Eugene Peterson book I ever read. The first Eugene Peterson book I ever read was a book called Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It happened back in my mid-40s when I had turned the corner in my walk of discipleship away from just going to church and trying to figure it out and being involved in ministry the way I understood it 
And all of a sudden that phrase, you know, I've told you about at the opening of the story about the wise and foolish builders, jumped off the page at me and I saw where the Lord says, whoever hears what I say and does it is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And in that instant, everything shifted in me and became about obedience. Hear and obey, see and obey, hear and obey, see and obey. Every day we get up. We ask the Lord to reveal to us what he's doing in the earth, and we say yes to however he wants us to be involved in it. That's all. And it requires a long obedience in the direction of whatever he has called us to. And right after I had turned that corner, I was listening to an interview with a guy, a guy that I admired. And he, and he was talking about the good works that he was involved in in the world. And he quoted a German philosopher named Nietzsche who said, in order for anything good to happen, there is required a long obedience in the same direction. There, thereby results and has always resulted in the long run something which makes life worth living. Long obedience in the same direction. So, the Reformation and the transformation involves hearing from God and doing what God says. Not just getting saved and going to church. Not just praying a sinner's prayer and calling it done and saying that we've arrived. All you've done when you repent is step through a gate now what are you going to do about the pathway that's in front of you? Long obedience in the same direction. On the day that you breathe your last breath, you should be closer to the heart of the Father than you've ever been any other day in your life. Because it's about progression, process. It's about every day advancing further toward His heart. You see, eternity in his presence is really amounts to eternity in the heart of God. Right, I mean, as deep inside him as you can get, his, his heart is where you live, spiritually speaking, right? And every day of our lives here on earth is an advancement toward that. So that on the last day we live, we're closer than we've ever been, and our natural death just amounts to a step right into where we belong, right? And Peterson uses the example of a wedding versus marriage. He said when he, does, when he did marriage counseling, the couple always wanted to talk about the wedding, and he wanted to talk about a marriage, right? Weddings are easy. They're not cheap, I can tell you that. Last year taught me that they're not cheap. But they're easy. It's easy to throw a party. It's easy to draw a crowd. It's easy to enjoy some good fellowship. You know, it's easy to have some good music and a good time and a good celebration. All that's easy. But when the wedding's over, you got the rest of your life looking at you with this person. That, that's when it gets more challenging. When the shine wears off of it. When the honeymoon's over. You've got to deal with real life. 
You got to get up and go to work. You got to pay bills. And then the children start coming and more pressure mounts. Stress shows up. All those things you didn't think about when you were on the dance floor on the night you got married. Right? That's where the rubber meets the road. We need to be looking at this kingdom walk as a marriage and not a wedding. Not just going to church on Sundays and having a big party and a good time and then going home and it has no impact on the rest of our week. No, we're in a marriage. I, I, I think it's not coincidental that marriage is the metaphor that's used in the New Testament to describe the relationship between Christ and His church. Because what is marriage supposed to be? Like it or not, God has a design for marriage that has never changed. Right? His design, His plan has never been altered. Any alterations to it have been made by people, not by Him. And it is, one of the elements of marriage is that it is to be the rest of your life that's why in the traditional marriage ceremony, the phrase, until death do us part. There's not supposed to be anything different from that. I mean, if it's been different from that in your life, it is what it is, right? And you can repent for whatever your part of disobedience in any particular situation is or was and move on. God's not going to cast you out because something happened that shouldn't have happened. But His design is a man and a woman in a covenant relationship. Covenant. Covenants can't be broken. I mean, if you, if you leave a covenant, the covenant's still there. You just bailed on it. You are living in disobedience. Right? But the covenant doesn't go away. Till death do us part is the marriage commitment. And it involves day to day building relationships, communication, dealing with stresses, raising children. It is deep, it is impactful, it is all-consuming, and that's what our role in the kingdom is supposed to be. So, yeah, we come to church. We do what we do. We enjoy music most Sundays, not today. We fellowship. We have an opportunity to give. We listen to the Word. But then, hey, what the kingdom is, is about walking out of those doors, digging in to the heart of God through prayer, study, reading, meditation, which will lead you. Listen, don't worry about your service. If you do the personal devotion thing right, He'll lead you to the service. He'll bring the needs to you. He will interact. He will intersect you with the people you need to meet who need you. And that service will become worship in your own life. I'm, I'm super grateful that we are a house and a family um, that is focused on obedience 
and little else. You know, little else. So the most invigorating things that happen around here is when people show up who have needs and say, hey, can you help me? Can you walk this pathway with me? Can you answer these questions and maybe help me get me on a, in a better direction? Can you show me Jesus is what they're saying through your own human actions. I'm grateful that that's who we are. I look forward to being that for the rest of my life because this is a covenant between us and him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your heart and your words, your instruction, your encouragement, just like the people heard through the book of Deuteronomy, through Josiah the king. You have encouragement and you have instruction for us today. And you've given us a little bit of that. I thank you for the opportunity to be part of a kingdom family that's here to worship and to fellowship together, but also to serve and to love and to give and to bless the poor and the hungry and the vulnerable and the weak. I pray your blessings of peace and power and provision and protection over us as we go, that you would give us a good week and that you would intersect us with the people that we need to have an impact on. I pray for JC right now that you would just touch her and that you would resolve this issue that's going on with her quickly and completely. And I pray for others who have needs this morning, whether it's physical, mental health, addiction, relationships, or whatever the case may be, financial needs, that you would show up in miraculous ways and reveal your heart to us and do your work. And it's in your name we pray and we give you thanks. Amen. <laughs>